A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Yes, indeed it is. And I cannot tell you the sense of purpose I feel every time I slide behind this microphone and open my big fat yapper. Okay, maybe I could say that a little more eloquently. I mean, when I sit down to provide truth, light, and encouragement to lovers of freedom everywhere. We all know the first statement's probably the most true, though, of the two of them. Anyway, welcome to the show. Thanks to our sponsors, Firesteel.com. Remember, when you order something from Firesteel.com, the coupon code you want to put in there is my name, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, and they'll knock 10% off your purchase price. Very worth your while. Take a look at their website, firesteel.com. Also, thanks to the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Thank you to both of them for being sponsors of the show. We have a lot to talk about this hour. And I, there was, I was going to put this one off till the end, but I'm going to go ahead and spend a little bit of time talking about Ammon Bundy. I know you heard yesterday that uh, the U.S. District, uh, actually the U.S. Appeals Court, upheld the dismissal of the case against the Bundys. And you think back for how long this has been going on now, how long that's been hanging over their heads. I mean, I was there in 2014. I met with Ammon Bundy the day of the standoff. I was friends with his brother Ryan for years prior to that, very aware of what was going on, and yet never could have foreseen the incredible turn of events that would take place that day. And I've, I've told this to some of my closest friends. Uh, those who are closest get the, the most details. It's, it's the kind of thing that, uh, I'll just say it, the, the, the experience was sacred enough that, that it's not for everybody. But when I was there at Bundy Ranch that day in April of 2014, um, it was very, very clear to me that what was happening there was of far greater significance than simply some rancher got himself sideways with the BLM, you know, the Bureau of Land Management. And there was a very powerful spiritual dynamic and I knew that there, there was something very key about uh, the, the nature of liberty that was at stake there. It felt like we were standing at, a, at an historical crossroad. And every one of my friends who was there with me felt the same thing. We all just were like, wow, this, is, this feels really more significant than what you might think. And of course, this is before there was any kind of a standoff. This is before the whole media brouhaha. This is before the FBI swooped in following Malheur and rounded up all these people who were there at the standoff. But I had the privilege of going to court three years ago in Vegas and and watching the Bundy trial unfold. Nobody, myself included, thought that they would ever see the outside of a prison within their natural lives. I mean, the odds were just too stacked against it. That's not an admission. Well, you know, because they did something so wrong, they were going to bury him under the jail. That's that's not what I'm saying. We thought that the combined might of all those regulatory government agencies, all those law enforcement agencies, and just the sheer weight of the federal apparatus was going to make sure that they were crushed no matter what. And it sure looked like it. 
I mean, you look at some of the earlier trials and some of the people who were like, I just have no choice but to take a plea bargain. It looked like, you know, they were going to be going away for hundreds of years. There didn't appear to be any way that they could outspend the resources that were available to the government. There didn't appear to be any way that they could um, outlawyer all of those uh, those legal teams working with the FBI hand in hand trying to figure out what's the best way to put these guys away for good. But I sat there with a front row seat and I watched it happen. And and I, you know, I, I say this with with all humility for those of you who are not believers, but um, the Bundys maintained from the very beginning that their faith in God would deliver them. And it did. And when Judge Navarro handed down that dismissal and said, uh, this is, you know, this there's been an egregious injustice done here. By the way, the prosecution has conducted itself, namely withholding exculpatory evidence and lying over evidence that it did hold. She said, this is the only remedy that we can possibly do. A new trial is not going to cut it. And I remember the incredible sense of relief and gratitude and, and humility that swept through that courtroom as that announcement was made. Very, very powerful. That was, that was a day that I will remember for the rest of my life. And, and it was even cooler, too, from the standpoint. And again, I, I, I know you're going to think you are just the most superstitious guy in the world. But it was so amazing to walk out of that courthouse and see all of the different people, the members of their legal team, all the supporters, the press, which, you know, just this huge group of people gathered out there. And as Clive and Bundy walked out of that courthouse, a free man, later that afternoon, it began to rain for the first time in something like 165 days there in Las Vegas. I don't know. It was just fitting. Maybe I've watched Shawshank Redemption one too many times, but it was just fitting. And the amazing thing here is that, uh, you know, the, this, this dismissal was appealed. So the, courts, uh, the court said, hey, um, this cannot be tried again. Of course, the government appealed that, uh, that dismissal. Well, let's kick it back up to the, uh, to the Circuit Court of Appeals and see what they say. And yesterday, that uh, U.S. Appeals Court upheld that dismissal of the case. There's a link in the show notes to, to the, an article, and this is, I think it's from ABC News. You know, it, they can try and spin it however they want. Well, the government must have bungled the case. No, the, what the government did was they tried to bully and intimidate a family, and they got caught doing it. And just when it seemed like there was no possibility that this family would ever prevail against, you know, Leviathan, they did. And so like a lot of people, I was very happy to hear that uh, the the dismissal has been upheld. It's done. It's a done deal. Now, interestingly enough, even as that dismissal was uh, was uh, upheld and the Bundys are off the hook, Ammon Bundy was driving a box truck full of watermelons uh, through the state of Utah yesterday and was stopped by police in Perry, Utah. Now, this is not a major metropolis, so I guess maybe things were, bury, were, were boring there. But a Perry police officer stopped him, threatened him with arrest. Well, somehow Ammon avoided arrest, but he was able to, uh, to walk away from the encounter. But I mean literally walk away in that they impounded his truck. They impounded the watermelons that he was carrying. I think the, the pretext was, well, you didn't stop at the port of entry when you came through here, and that's, you know, a commercial vehicle. And it was none of those things. 
And, and I want to tell you that there's a very happy ending to this story in that, uh, okay, so yes, the state still continues to screw with the Bundys. Even though, you know, the, the sword of Damocles no longer hangs over their heads. Yeah, at least the state of Utah is out there being a troublemaker. And I'm convinced it's, it's not the Bundy family that are the troublemakers. It's the state. And what's really interesting, Ammon posted a couple of, uh, couple of videos on, on Facebook. One of them was walking to whomever, whomever he was delivering these watermelons to and saying, I'm going to get the job done one way or another. Well, they impounded the truck. They, they towed it off to Ryder. Apparently it was a Ryder truck. And uh, Ryder called to Ammon and said, hey, we have your truck here. We're watching out for your watermelons here. The, the, the reefer unit, the, the refrigerator unit is still plugged in and everything. Come and get your truck. So all of that rigmarole and, uh, and Ryder, thank you. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep this in mind the next time I have to move. That's, I'm, I'm going I'm to try to do my best to, to reward you for your good citizenship and looking out for Ammon Bundy. And he went on his way and he made his delivery and it was done. But just, just a little bit of irony, right? You know, this, this massive thing that would have put him away for life and finally he's free and finally the drama can end. Well, unless you drive through Perry, Utah, in which case, you know, somebody's going to want to screw with you in the name of the law. I'm keeping people safe. Just doing my duty. <laughs> okay, Barney. Thanks a lot. All right. Maybe that wasn't necessary, but I, I'm I'm grateful that it ended well for him. <sighs> can I can I confess something that that I personally have a little bit of a concern over though, and that is um, this coming November. If for some reason Trump does not win re-election, maybe even if he does, but almost certainly if he doesn't. I believe the Bundys are going to be targeted again by vindictive people within the federal apparatus who just can't, their egos can't handle the fact that they lost to what they see as a bunch of country bumpkins who, you know, wouldn't have sense to come in out of the rain, but who somehow prevailed over them, stood up for their rights, and against all odds, succeeded. I hope I'm wrong. But my cynicism towards what government is capable of doing and willing to do, well, let's just say it's at an all-time high. And I do wish the very best for the Bundys, and I congratulate them on at least getting this one legal matter finally put to rest. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show, 801-331-8113. If you would like to join the conversation, I'd like to talk to you. Got an article I'm going to include in the show notes today. I hope you'll check it out. It's a fairly lengthy one, but it's Doug Casey on the recent corruptions of the English language. And I don't want to sound like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat when I say this, but I'm fairly convinced that when you want to manipulate people, when you want to gaslight them and control them, what you do is you change language. And probably the best example of this that I can think of is there are a number, a number of things that you just simply cannot say today that weren't considered necessarily shocking or bad even you know a few years ago, but you just don't dare say them. 
Can I give you an example? So uh, what was it I saw the other day? Someone had posted uh, there, there was some official guideline. Well, you know, um, people with a uterus, blah, 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 something, something, you know, this uh, this medical uh, regulation or something. People with a uterus. And someone who just made the comment, yeah, we used to call them women. But if you say that, if you say that out loud, almost guaranteed you're going to be called on it. Oh, and then there was the yearbook at, uh, where was it, Highland High School in Salt Lake City. And one of the graduating seniors said, there are two genders and lots of mental illness. Now, look, I get it. That's a snarky thing to say, but... That is not even remotely close to, you know, fighting language. It's not like somebody standing on a street corner yelling the N-word at the top of their lungs. Senior sayings, by the way, the little captions that they put uh, under their senior photo, they're supposed to be a little bit pithy. I really got a kick out of my friend's son who talked about how, you know, his, uh, I don't remember what he said, something was as fake as a politician's smile. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty, pretty good. But for someone to simply say there were two genders and lots of mental illness. You may not agree with it. But for a lot of folks, it's that's a pretty fair representation of what we see happening around us. But you're not allowed to disagree. You're not. In fact, if if you don't vigorously nod your head, yes, yes, this is this is the only thing we, we can say, um, then you're considered suspect. I don't know who said it first, but there was a quote that I saw yesterday that said, I think there is a strain of the social justice movement, which is entirely about abusing the ability to tar people with extremely dangerous labels that they are not allowed to deny in order to further their political goals. Big time. It's, it's happening, and it's happening with greater regularity. And one of the reasons it's happening is because the meaning of words is being changed. It's like changing the rules of the game when it's already in progress. If you're the one doing the changing, you're really not likely to lose, are you? All right, let's go to the phone. Caller, welcome to the show. Barely. You're real quiet. Speak up. Uh, you want, okay, I can change that. Okay, there we go. What's on your mind? Yeah, well, you know, I often ponder about what you're talking about all the time. I mean, we cannot disagree anymore. If we disagree with anybody, we're, we're looked at as an outcast. You know, so what? Suppose I want to be racist in this country. What's to stop me from being racist? It's, it's my right to be racist if I want to. If you're, look, if your behavior is peaceful, it's nobody's business what you're thinking. Or what you hold in your heart. Exactly. If I don't want to wear a mask, I don't want to wear one. And there's no reason anybody should be telling me that I need to wear one. I feel better without one, and I don't want to wear one. And I just wish more and more people would start stepping up to the plate. And, and I mean, Can you for want- God's sake... Can you understand, though, why people are afraid? I mean, when you see cancel culture in action, that's a pretty strong disincentive to draw any kind of attention to yourself, much less the kind of attention that comes for those who say, oh, I don't agree with that. You what? You know, and they and they, they chimp out on you. They do. And, and you know what? 
I always go right back at them. Because if you can dish it out, you better be ready to take it, too. And I just, I'm, I've had it. I, you know, you got a First Amendment right. You have a constitution in this country. And, you know, what, you're, what you say, your freedom of speech, they can't hold that against you. I really don't give a rat. But <laughs> okay. if you're offended, okay, I just don't anymore. It's, and that's the way I'm going to be. I, I, even if it, you know how many friends I have lost since Donald Trump has taken office. <laughs> you know what I say to myself? I guess that's the way it should be. Let them go on their merry way. And then I look back on it. And I look at those people, and I say they really weren't an asset to having them around anyway. Well, I'm not going to tell so you. I'm not going to tell you that that's not the the right approach. But but I will tell you, I do have a little bit different approach, because what I'm trying to do, I'm hoping I'm hoping to get minds to open that have been closed like a steel trap, and and that means. I have to be willing to, to take some slings and arrows. I have to be willing to be abused sometimes if, if someone doesn't want to hear something or if someone is just, you know, in, in the mood to react negatively. Now, for me, I would rather walk away. I'd rather say, hey, this seems more like an argument than, than it does a discussion and, and leave it for another time when maybe they're a little more receptive to talking. And I'm, I'm not talking about when they're going to see things my way and admit that I'm right. I'm just saying when they're willing to actually discuss as opposed to you know puff up and and represent but then again you know that's uh, why i do what i do is because i'm i'm hoping to have impact i want to see hearts and minds change and i've tried the brute force approach it's very entertaining for the audience i used to love tuning into rush limbaugh and listening to him administer verbal beat downs to people who were calling in and disagreeing with him i've heard other hosts do this over the years too i was pretty good at it myself but i came to the realization it really wasn't accomplishing anything of lasting value and so i've taken a different approach here in the last few years and i i think the single most important advice that i have been given is to lose the need to win that need to dominate that need to be right and as I've talked with people from many different points of view, not just the ones who already agree with me, I have found that that is the single most important factor for being able to at least introduce, at least to introduce some kind of uh, uh, an angle they haven't considered before. Sometimes, after reflection and on their own terms, they'll come back to me and say, you know what, I see what you're saying, or that, that actually makes sense. I've just never heard it put that way. Sometimes they don't. But I guarantee every time that I that I feel like this is, you know, somebody's got to be the winner and somebody's got to be the loser in this situation. Nothing changes. They become more entrenched in their point of view. You know, I'm more entrenched in my point of view. And I mean, put this, let's liken it to ourselves as far as how many times have you been argued out of a point of view because somebody administered the sickest burn possible and you just had no choice but to admit okay you're right now i will change my thinking and therefore change my heart it just doesn't work that way you want to persuade people you've got to use higher methods than brute force that's if you want to persuade people now if you want to argue with people and you know fight tooth and knuckle then by all means 
you know, than the the pro wrestling approach and a you know a, a leap from the turnbuckle and maybe a folding chair across the back of the head. That's going to be a great way to approach it. I like the fact that I can have friends who come from very different viewpoints than me. And we can still talk about stuff. And maybe there's some things we have to say, okay, that one's off the table. Because we're never going to come to any kind of common ground on it. But I find there are a lot of decent people out there who are not part of the choir, if you get my drift. And my life is richer for my association with them. Take that for what it's worth. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sorry, I I mistook my microphone for a uh, pulpit. And man, I was pounding on that thing, right? I'm going to open the lines up here again in a few minutes. I want to share a couple of excerpts from this article by Doug Casey on recent corruptions of the English language. This is pretty powerful stuff. He says, let's discuss words. Many of the words you hear, especially on television and other media, are confused, conflated, or completely misused. Many recent changes in the way words are used are corrupting the language, and the corruption of language is adding to the corruption of civilization itself. Now, he says words are extremely important because they provide the most important means we have to communicate with each other. If you don't mean what you say and say what you mean, then it's impossible to communicate accurately. And he reminds us of the famous line at the end of uh, Cool Hand Luke, where Paul Newman gets shot. What we've got here is a failure to communicate. He says, well, that's what I want to talk about. Where shall I start? He says, because there are over a million words in English. I've arbitrarily, arbitrarily chosen a few that are especially relevant to investors and freedom lovers. Many of these words are popular with the political classes. Now, I'm just going to share a few of them, but I want you to consider what he has to say here. Things like stimulate the economy. That's a phrase that came out in the 60s, and it really just means print up money. They don't use it much anymore because they can see it no longer results in stimulus, rather the opposite. So now it's called quantitative easing. And everybody uses it without questioning the fact that it means print money, inflate the currency, or debase the currency. They say quantitative easing with no irony. And he says it makes me think the chattering classes are in actuality, in reality, quite stupid. But he says I'll discuss the word stupid later. The powers that be use a word, and he says then all the jabbering monkeys follow their lead using the same word. And he says I advise you to call them on it. When you use the enemy's language, you're playing the enemy's game on his field. And you can't win a battle when you do that. Now, he goes through another, a, a bunch of other different uh, investment terms, time deposits, demand deposits, uh, debentures. Is that right? I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Bonds and debentures? Anyway, here's a few, though, that, that you'll hear that may sound a little bit more familiar, particularly if you are out of the realm of investment. He says, uh, let's, let's talk about words like currency. Currency is a relatively recent invention. That's the government's substitute for money. It originated as a receipt for money, in other words, gold, but currency no longer has any relationship to money. And forget about even having currency. It's all about credit. Even currency is going out of circulation with the war on cash. Soon, you'll only have credit. Ephemeral digits in the ether. 
Everything you buy or sell will go through your bank account so the powers that be can know exactly what you're doing. It'll be pretty much impossible to evade taxes or maintain any privacy. As you already know, the world is rapidly going in that direction. So let's try another word. We talked about this one last hour. Diversity. He says another word the political class uses a lot is diversity. We've got to have diversity. To which Doug Casey says, no, we don't have to have diversity. I don't see why every room has got to have a few blacks, Hispanics, or women. Well, of course, half the human race are women, but he says, occasionally I like to go to a men's club. It's odd that men are never invited to ladies' functions and don't care. In fact, birds of a feather usually flock together. That is perfectly natural. Doug Casey says, I don't think you need diversity. If you want it in your club, fine. But freedom of association is far, far more important. He says, I form my friendships based on neither diversity nor a lack of diversity, although there's a natural tendency to associate with people like yourself. And he says, I form my friendships based upon the character and the beliefs that a person has. The attributes that create diversity are stupid accidentals. The fact that diversity is emphasized draws attention to incidentals like race, sex, and gender, and diverts it from important things like character and beliefs. So in this respect, diversity has become destructive. Cultural Marxists love it because they hate people. Unity, by the way, he says, has also become poisonous. That's another one moronic politicians love to invoke. We've got to have unity. No, we don't have to have unity. In fact, we shouldn't have unity. Unity is dangerous. It's what happens when all the chimpanzees get together and start hooting and panting to create a war. People like Hitler, Stalin, and Mao required unity. He says, remember when it was okay to have bank secrecy or any kind of secrecy, and then secrecy somehow became wrong? So moral coward says, well, let's just have privacy. That word sounds less threatening. Well, he says, you can forget about privacy, too. Now you're supposed to have transparency. That's another word that's been revitalized in the last politically correct generation or two and is promoted by busybodies as a good thing. Now he says, if I own shares in a publicly traded corporation as a shareholder, I'll demand transparency from the management. Generally speaking, management shouldn't be trusted. They're hired suits and shareholders should keep them on a short leash. But nobody other than shareholders has a right to demand transparency from a corporation. So in general, he says, forget about this word. It's popular. Everybody uses it. But it should be expunged from your vocabulary simply because it's become such a favorite of cultural Marxists and busybodies. Ooh, how about this one? Fair. Oh, there's a great word. But everybody's got a different idea of fair. Let's put a bunch of money on the table and we'll divide it up. Well, what's fair? I don't know, but I guarantee everybody's going to have a different idea of what's fair. So let's forget about the idea of fair because nobody knows what that is. It's a floating abstraction. He says, whatever happened to the word justice? What is just? It means everybody gets what they deserve. Okay, now you can solve the problem. It's a bit more specific, more focused to find out that what you deserve as opposed to what's fair. Because frankly, some people don't deserve anything. Simply existing doesn't give you a right, necessarily, to a piece of the pie or even a right to vote on it. But nobody talks about justice today. They talk about fairness. And, of course, this corrupts the moral character of society. Now, he goes on. There's more and more stuff here. United States, interventionism, isolationism, concentration camps. He goes through all of these. I'm sorry, non-interventionism. That was a good one, too. 
the point he's making here is, look, stupidity is the ability to see the immediate and direct consequences of an action, but the inability to see the indirect and delayed consequences. That's a much more useful definition of stupidity. But he says, I'll give you an even better one. It's an unwitting tendency towards self-destruction. So when I use the word stupidity in reference to the misuse of words and the conflation of concepts, it's appropriate. These things are not trivial factors in the degradation of Western civilization. And he says, we've only scratched the, the surface of the problem here in the last few minutes. Interesting stuff. By the way, I don't know if you've heard about this. Uh, there's an, another article I'll have linked in the show notes. Again, you can get these at the com. Abolishing history from the classroom is what got us into this mess. Annie Holmquist is a marvelous writer. And according to NBC, she says, Representative LaShawn Ford of Chicago says that she's a state representative. And she says that the citizens of Illinois have been subjected to miseducation in their history curriculum. And as such, I'm sorry, it's he, sorry, LaShawn, is demanding immediate action by removing current history books and curriculum practices that unfairly communicate our history. Oh, boy. Let's take history out of the classroom, or at least history that LaShawn Ford doesn't agree with. Ford's press release quotes Malika Gardner of the organization We Will, saying it's urgent that the miseducation of our children comes to an end as we witness the current generation or the current climate rather become more hostile. Miseducation has fed and continues to feed systemic racism for generations. Now, Annie Holmquist says, look, there's a good point here. Miseducation does seem to be at the heart of the hostile environment that we're currently experiencing. But she says, I would argue that removing history from the classroom is not the answer. Far from it. In fact, a more thorough knowledge of history may actually diminish the hostility and chaos surrounding us. Thomas Jefferson, by the way, makes this point in his Notes on the State of Virginia from 1784. Writing on the role of education and the role of public schools in America, Jefferson encourages education of the poor as well as the rich for the well-being of the nation. Such education is necessary for maintaining a generation of thinkers who will in turn keep the population safe by being the ultimate guardians of their own liberty. And he gives three reasons as to why the history of Western civilization is one of the most important subjects that we can teach children. The first reason is good judgment. You can learn from those things that succeeded as well as those that didn't. Secondly, diversity. Now, this is actually in, in the truest sense of the word. Promoting knowledge of diverse customs and cultures. And third, to, defle- to defeat flawed thinking. Something the Founding Fathers understood, and Jefferson clearly understood, is that human nature is flawed. A good system of government, therefore, is needed to keep the human nature of our leaders in check. And a good knowledge of history is one of the ways to do this. For as Jefferson notes, history will enable students to know ambition under every disguise it may assume and knowing it to defeat its views. I think that's the real reason why this particular state representative wants to get education out of the classroom. We don't want to risk somebody catching on to what the political class is actually doing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I've got a story I want to share with you coming up here in just a few moments. Uh, This is from a good friend of mine. I think the people that uh, that I admire the most, the ones, uh, the smartest people I know are the people who can pick a lesson out of whatever experience they happen to be going through at the moment. And I really like that. And by the way, being well-schooled in history just helps you to, to learn from the lessons that other people have provided. I'll share that with you in a few moments. This is, this is not a dry history lesson that I have for you, but rather uh, kind of an interesting observation about um, schooling. And it came uh, through a friend of mine who had a neighbor kid help him fix his lawnmower. We'll get to that in just a few moments. I've got Ray on the line. Hi, Ray. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brian. Um, I, I don't know if they can hear us in Salt Lake, but K-Talk is down, streaming and, and the phone number. But um, I wanted to say that, that um, have you ever heard of that saying, um, a person convinced against his will is of the same opinion still? Oh, yeah. I believe it. Yes. There you go. And, and as far as changing the language, uh, 40 Two years ago, when I studied the Constitution, took that course, paid for a um, constitutional course. In there, um, to make a long story short, they, he said that he showed documentation with the Trilateral Commission, Carnegie, Rockefeller, and Morgan, um, the first original one, back at the turn of the century, that um, they, they tried to change the Constitution and the, and the teaching of it in this country, and, and they couldn't do it. So they put a lot of money into books and to getting a lot of people hired right out of school to go to colleges and change the teaching of this country, not, you know, not teach the Constitution anymore. But the main point I want to say is, along with changing the words and changing the culture, but for a long time, I didn't know why people couldn't tell who was a conservative and who was a liberal. And then I understood that the template was changed, you know, to what we understand nowadays, you know, a conservative liberal is. But originally, the founding fathers, they had a template where anarchy was on the far left and total government was on the far right. And so, so actually, the Democrats are for bigger government right now than the Republicans. So actually, the Democrats are further on the right towards total dictatorship than the Republicans. And there's nobody on the anarchy side. And if you vote back and forth, back and forth, you know, and just keep the government in the middle, halfway between anarchy and dictatorship, then we can live out our lives. But when we vote, nothing changes because both parties are on the dictatorship side. One is more than the other. And see, that's why they, all these people voted for Mitt Romney. They actually thought he was a moderate. But if you use the template the Founding Fathers gave us, he actually was on, is on the big government side, the Democrat side. He, he, he's a liberal. And, and people are using the wrong template to, to, to distinguish who is a conservative and who is a liberal. And that's why they don't know who to vote for. That's a good point. Now, I I will tell you, there's a tried-and-true method that I use, Ray, and that is I watch their actions rather than their words because politicians are really good at saying what they think we want to hear, right? They'll they'll mirror back at us, well, our focus group said that you respond favorably to these phrases or this word, and that's exactly what they'll do. They'll say that word until, you know, it's soft in our ears and it's warm and, oh, that that feels good. He gets me. 
But look at their actions. What did they actually do? Never mind what they said. What did they actually do? That'll tell you where they stand. Of course, this is true for all of us, not just the politicians. Ray, thanks for your call. I want to share this article here from my friend Gary Arnell. Gary is an educator, and his article is titled Lessons from a Lawnmower, Thoughts on Education. I thought this was a fairly powerful way of of finding a lesson in something simple. Maybe I would have missed this. This would have probably gone right over my head. But I like how he sees the world. Gary says, last Saturday I was outside fighting another losing battle with the weeds that love the unlandscaped area that surrounds our property. Now he says, I was armed with a little electric lawn edger that was no match for the legion of noxious brambles. As I contemplated my fate, a portly, spectacled young man drove up on a four-wheeler. Kyle, as I'll call him, introduced himself as being 15 years old and looking for work. Now he was high on the social awkwardness scale, the pinnacle of which I myself occupied at that age, So Gary says, I was impressed with his ambition and his outgoing manner. He says, it became quickly apparent that Kyle is very mechanically minded. He was trying to earn enough money to buy a broken lawnmower from a neighbor to fix up and resell. He related story after story of small engines he had repaired, weed whackers, mowers, even ATVs. Technical terms and intricate descriptions of engines, repair processes, and lessons flowed freely. Well, Gary mentioned to him that he had a 20-year-old lawnmower that he kept around to mow weeds that no longer worked. It had performed faithfully until last season, and he said, my wee mechanical skills proved to be no match for whatever ailed it. So Kyle agreed to tackle the project. And Gary says, we agreed on a price, and he rode home to gather some supplies. Upon his return, he handily dismantled part of the machine, describing each step and what he thought might be wrong as he went. Well, in short order, he had it working again, much to my surprise and the dismay of my weeds. Kyle then spent some time working in the hot sun. I paid him, and he left. Not long after, he says another neighbor who knows Kyle remarked to me that Kyle is functionally innumerate, meaning he has little concept of time or numbers, and faces significant struggles in school as a result. And Gary says, I thought about what school must be like for Kyle. Our educational system is essentially one-size-fits-all. Some variation in electives is allowed for personal interest, but everyone is required to cover the essentials at the same age, the same pace, and the same starting point, regardless of their individual needs or aspirations. And he asks, what if there was a model that allowed Kyle to approach the essentials from the context of what he has an aptitude for and already excels at? How differently might his mind take hold of those ideas? How much more confidence in himself might he have? How differently might he be treated by his peers? Now, my friend talks about how Albert Einstein is credited credited with saying, everybody is a genius. But if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. And Gary says, I, had, I don't have the answer to this dilemma. Our schools are filled with hardworking men and women dedicated to their students and the idea that education is the great equalizer and door to opportunity. He says, I honor them, especially right now as they struggle with doing their job in the midst of a global pandemic. But he says, I wonder how different education might be if we altered the model itself, if we encouraged innovation in the education space, by allowing entrepreneurs to create radically different, market-driven approaches for different children, 
and allowed educators much more freedom and leeway to tailor learning to the aptitudes of their students. There are many hurdles and sacred cows that would have to be addressed, but he says, I think of Kyle and other children I know, and I believe it would be worth it. I'll have this article posted in uh, the show notes, which again, you can access at thebrianhydeshow.com. Gary has a number of great articles there exploring morality, politics, economics, society, slot canyons. He's lucky he lives in southern Utah, so he's got that option. You might want to spend a little bit of time there checking out his work because the guy has a great mind and a great heart, and I think he has a message that's definitely worth considering. Okay, just want to give a quick shout-out again to my sponsors. I want to thank uh, Firesteel.com. I know that, uh, you know, those of you who are preparedness-minded, you've thought of some way. You've got a cigarette lighter or you've got, you know, a pack of waterproof matches or something like that, lifeboat matches. You really should have one of the Firesteel products as part of your preparedness, you know, regimen. It should be a part of your kit. It'll fit in your pocket. These are very, very high-quality strikers and rods. They will make a shower of sparks, and you, know, you can start a fire even if the thing is wet. And one of their fire starters, one of their fire steels, will take the place of about 15,000 matches. Tell me that that wouldn't make sense, to have one or many of these things scattered throughout everybody's you know, preparedness kits. It's just called covering your bases. Firesteel.com. Mention Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at checkout. They'll give you a nice discount. Also, a shout-out to the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. This is my friend John Staples and his wife, Heather. They are superstars when it comes to securing your mortgage. And, of course, Patriot Home Mortgage started very small in little old St. George, Utah. It's now 23 states strong. And whether you are looking for uh, refinance, maybe you're looking for a brand-new home loan, these are the folks you want to talk to. They've got the experience and the professionalism to get the job done. And I give John my highest personal recommendation because I've known the guy for years and he's the real deal. That's going to do it for today. By the way, if you haven't checked out uh, the BrianHydeShow.com, please go on there. I keep show notes there, original essays. And yes, you can even drop a note to me and tell me, hey, maybe try this once in a while. I'm open to feedback, you know. This is The Brian Hyde Show.